Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. With me, Tracy Jones. And me, Heather Noble. And this week, our topical discussion is on a subject that is as broad as it is long. I mean, I think we've, I think we've really gone for a massive subject, haven't we? We could do a series, couldn't we, on this? Um, but worth talking about anyway. The subject is behavioural science and also the part that that plays in business, which is, is, is very significant. In a nutshell, behavioural science is, well, exactly what it says, the way that we respond and react um, and the way that we're influenced and influence. And it's, it's around subjectivity, objectivity and what you can from a business point of view do to use that information to your competitive advantage effectively what sort of stuff did you come across tracy with this well i started off with looking for a definition and uh, i went to britannica.com and uh, it just confirmed that it's quite a broad subject <laughs> so that yeah. you, you should always worry when the definition starts uh, behavioral science it's various disciplines <laughs> dealing with the subject of human actions, including the fields of sociology, social and cultural anthropology, psychology and behavioural aspects of biology, economics, geography, law, psychiatry and political science. At right. that point, I thought, oh, have we bitten off more than we can chew? But I thought, no, we, we've made this commitment and we've also, you might um, start to realize as we go through the show that pretty much the whole show is based on behavioral science so there was no turning back at this point now it's a term that started to be used mostly in the 1950s in america and the term behavioral science suggests an approach that's more experimental than the older term that was used for this type of study which was social sciences i sort of gave up on the technical academic aspect of it and went down a rabbit hole of ted talks it's like a comfort space for me <laughs> and um, this was prompted by um, a paragraph in the book that we're reviewing later on in the show and they suggested that we um we researched the work of of these three people so immediately i went to ted talks and um, the three people were dan Ariely, tally sharrow and daniel kahneman um, but then i went on and also watched a video by alex lasky and there were really broad um videos i don't know if you've seen any of these heather but the dan Ariely one um i start, he's got a few on there so the one i watched was what makes us feel good at work and essentially it boils down to meaning it's so important and he, he gives some really good examples of how we've we've flipped from sort of the industrial revolution where adam smith said efficiency was key karl marx's view is that meaning is the key and he reckons dan reckons that it's now flipped more towards the meaning than efficiency in a workplace that was a really fascinating um, video and he, he said that motivation is more than payment which i think we already mm have recognized um, motivation in the workplace has to include meaning creation challenge ownership identity 
pride and so on but he gave some great examples um, of some experiments that they did and this is what's fascinating about behavioral science i think is the experiments that they do and some of the case studies so one experiment they did was they got a, a group of people building lego models and then um, they would ask them if they wanted to build another model but for slightly less money and then one that when they'd done that asked them if they wanted to build another one but again for slightly less money and and they did it with a number of different ways one was they take the lego model off them and just place it under the desk and then ask them if they wanted to do another one at less money and people would do that they'd find their limit where the money they were given really didn't uh, compensate them sufficiently for the lego building but the other one was they they'd dismantle the lego blocks in front of them and ask them if they wanted to build another one oh so they oh okay they so destroyed what they built they destroyed and and clearly if you thought about it rationally they were building a lego model it didn't have a massive amount of meaning but it was being kept and put under the table but when it was being dismantled before their very eyes the exercise lost meaning completely and it, and it was amazing how much quick how much more quickly they declined to build another, another model than the other ones even though the pay was going down the ones who had the model dismantled before their very eyes actually gave up a lot sooner and in the workplace that sort of thing is really important and I think the second exercise he mentioned was where they had to go through a piece of paper and find certain letters so they had to go through this piece of paper it was like a word searchy type puzzle and with um, three different groups they had the one where they took the sheet off them looked through it went hmm and commented nodded or whatever and then put it on a pile they had another one where they took the sheet off them but didn't look at it but just put it on a pile and then the third one they took the sheet off them and shredded it straight away without looking at it now what was really interesting with this experiment again they paid them but decreasing amounts every time that they did the exercise that the people who um, had the paper shredded clearly stopped quite quickly and the ones who had their sheet looked at and a passing comment made went on for a bit longer but what was really interesting was that the people whose paper hadn't been looked at they were as demotivated as the people whose paper was shredded before their eyes and that's a really really interesting yeah. and and yeah. he told lots of other stories there about um, how much would you sell your kids for origami all sorts of really interesting stories and uh, that's pretty much where I spent a whole afternoon watching videos um, <laughs> Daniel Kahneman talked about the riddle of experience versus memory and Tally Sharo uh, talked about the optimism bias how we have a tendency to overestimate the likelihood of experiencing good events in our lives and underestimating bad events absolutely fascinating story and then I finished off that whole binge of TED Talks with um, one by Alex Lasky on how behavioural science can lower your energy bill. And it, he, again, it was examples of how what an energy company had done to try and encourage people to use less electricity. You know, sending them little reminders and notes and everything, letters telling them how to reduce their costs. But the thing that really worked was being told that their neighbour was saving electricity. 
and it was massive the impact that being told what their neighbors were doing compared to them and how much of an impact that had on them so that talk was fascinating too so that's pretty much all i've done on behavioral science heather maybe you found out something a little bit more specific but i had great fun watching lots of videos yeah i i had great fun just really finding out a bit more about behavioral science um i came across an interesting article on a website called the decision lab um and it's um it was about something called the halo effect the halo effect in consumer perception uh why small details can make a big difference and they um cite uh, an experiment they that they did uh and it was about um how people perceive the quality of a product based on very small pieces of information so they were they were running an experiment on a, about a website and they literally had a login page it's a yellow screen it says login page username password login one is bright yellow one is pale yellow one has got comic sans type fonts one has got straightforward sort of aerial type font so they get people to log in uh, that's fine and then they start asking them questions about um whether the um whether people think that the app that they've just signed into will be intuitive to use um where it will work reliably will it be useful um will it be resilient to hacking and the people who disliked the login predominantly the people with the comic sans said no it wouldn't be it would be it wouldn't be intuitive to to use um it probably wouldn't be very reliable and it probably wouldn't be very resilient to hacking and that's just based on the quality that they perceive from that one bit of information you imagine how many touch points there are through a, a customer journey where you have the ability to get that wrong and that's and that's impacting on their perception of your product based on nothing nothing at all about the actual product so really really interesting and the decision lab website in the same way that you spend an afternoon um looking at ted talks i just went down this whole rabbit hole um of articles and experiments and they call them insights where they've looked at all sorts of different things um uh about gender bias about um just so many things so many things you could just as i say disappear down a how how working from home very relevant at the moment how working from home can amp up your team's communication and creativity so that's looking at it as a positive rather than a negative uh, so they've got some really good insights on there and then from that i found a website that i really 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 like which is called social change uk and they are predominantly um well they call themselves change makers but they um they research people's perception people's thinking and on there they talk a lot about how you research stuff how you find this sort of stuff out and they've got something called the a to z of research methods which in itself is just really really interesting how we start to measure how we start to gauge what tools are available to us and from a business point of view you know there are lots of uh, there are lots of lessons that we can learn just on a very subtle level 
in terms of how you might start to um, to look at the behaviour of your clients. And they've got some little sort of 10, 15 minute um, seminar type things. The social impact of coronavirus is a big one at the moment. But then, as I say, the A to Z research methods, it's half an hour and it, it just starts to go through uh, what you have at your disposal um, and when when to use these these different methods. I think uh, it's safe to say that um, we've opened a can of worms here because as well as the, the book that we've uh, we're reviewing later on in the show and these videos, it's really captured my imagination all of this and I think there's a lot more I want to do uh, reading around this and watching videos around it I certainly want to go and take a look at those websites that you've just mentioned and they uh, on the social change website they have got a downloadable file which uh, which is the a to z of research methods um, and I'll make sure that I put a link to that as well as the other things that we've talked about in this this section on our website which is the business.community you're listening to the business community on Cal on FM and in the other news section I'm going to lead with the new report from the ONS which is an extension of the studies they've been doing on the social impact of the coronavirus. Now they've just published a report on the social impacts around the country and in the regions of Britain. It's the first time that they've analysed the country and the regional differences with respect to how the corona pandemic has affected people's lives. I'll just pick out the key points, but I understand that they're going to be doing this as a, as a regular survey. And this one covers April 2020, and it presents results for Wales, Scotland, and nine English regions. So main points from this report, 80% of adults were worried about the effect that the coronavirus was having on their life. So that's the sort of thing that they were mentioning in the other report that we've mentioned for the last few weeks. However, this varies from 76% in East Midlands and in Scotland to 87% in the North East. And they found that those aged between 16 to 34 years in the North East were particularly worried. And in London, three out of every five workers said that they'd worked from home in April because of the pandemic. And this was higher than the other countries and regions, with the workers in the east of England and East Midlands being least likely to work from home. And people in Wales were most likely to have access to a private garden, while probably not surprisingly, people in London had least access. However, Londoners compensated by being the most likely to visit a park or public green space with people in Wales being least likely. But then they had a garden, didn't they? Then um, the report goes on to say that people in London had the lowest awareness of the government's stay-at-home guidelines in April. And awareness really? was highest in the West Midlands. That's surprising, isn't it? That is really surprising. And then the most neighbourly area... In, in Great Britain was apparently the Southwest, where 64% of people checked in on the, their neighbours at least once in April, compared with London, where 48% had checked at least once. And then in Scotland and the Northeast, around half of people thought that their household finances would remain the same in the coming 12 months, 
whereas people in London and the southeast were more pessimistic, with almost half saying that they expect their household finances to worsen. Interest, yeah, interesting data. And of course, from a business point of view, it's really helpful to be understanding what the mood is of your potential customers um, and or your workforce. So it's, it, I think it's really valuable to be able to get that sort of barometer check. And as we move through this, whether we'll see these, you know, some trends of things, people starting to feel better about certain elements and perhaps more concerned about others. So uh, it's really interesting data, really interesting. A new story that I wanted to mention, just um, I was just delighted to see it. Um, one of our favourite um, profile people that we've ever done is Dame Stephanie Shirley, who we've mentioned a million times. Uh, she's an all-round good egg. And she, um, she tweeted um, an excerpt from the Sunday Times, um, and it, it's regarding the rich list and that some of the firsts that they've had. So the rich list had the first British billionaire who was aged under 30, that was the Duke of Westminster, uh, the first to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, which was Gerald Ronson, um, Guinness fraudster, and the first to drop out of the list altogether after giving away her money, Dame Stephanie Shirley, software pioneer. Fantastic. Dame Stephanie, I would expect no less from her. So I couldn't let that go without mentioning it. But another story that I came across, which I thought was really interesting, there's been a lot of talk about, um, as part of the coronavirus, um, about what used to be known as sweatshops. They're not sweatshops anymore, one would hope, um, but where clothing is being sourced from overseas, being manufactured um, in you know in a cheaper environment um and then because of the the closing of shops the lot of uh, fashion retailers not taking the clothing that has been made because they don't have the ability to sell it and so somebody's come up with um a, a thing called a, a fashion box and essentially you i went along to the website and you put in your age your size uh, whether you like bold prints or pastels or stripes or you know you, a few questions whether you're interested in tops or bottoms um male female all of that sort of stuff and then you pay 35 pounds and they send you a box which contains some of the clothes that have been manufactured for top shop and gap and this is to generate revenue for the people who have made the clothes who are holding on to all this stock with no means of selling it. Um, so they're going to be um, there's about two billion dollars worth of orders. Um, that's nine hundred eighty two million garments that were meant to be sold. Wow. Uh, and I know and a million factory workers in Bangladesh now out of work and without any money. So I just thought it was a really, really interesting idea. And we've seen so many different ways that people are being innovative. Um, but I just thought this was a force for good and was certainly worth mentioning. So um, again, I'll put a link to that on our, our website. What other stories did you spot this week, Tracy? Well, one um, article caught my eye because... Um... A good friend of mine had mentioned in passing that she was struggling to read. Now, she's normally an avid reader. She reads way more books than me normally, and she, she plows through her Kindle reading book after book after book. And she said she's struggling to read at the moment. And uh, 
I, th I thought that was most unusual. And when I saw this article, I thought, oh, there we go. It's, it's not just my friend who has this issue. Um, the article was on Vox.com and the article is entitled, Why is it so hard to read a book right now? There we okay. go. I'll read that one then <laughs> and pass it on to my friend. So she actually, uh, the author of this article, Constance Grady, she went and consulted a neuroscientist and psychologist based at the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience at University College London. So he sounds like he might know what he's talking about. Mm. Oliver J. Robinson. And I'll, I'll just pick out a couple of, of bits from the article, which made a lot of sense. Uh, he said that the pandemic is the most uncertain thing possible. We don't know when it's going to end, whether you're going to get it. We don't really know what it is. And all of a sudden, everything in your environment is dangerous. Door handles are dangerous. Other people are dangerous. It's the most uncertain thing. And it's also completely uncontrollable. You can't really control what other people are going to do. But what you can do is seek information. So you can go online and you can search nonstop trying to resolve the uncertainty. But he says the problem is you're never going to actually resolve it. We're not going to actually find the solution and resolve it all straight away. And what we're trying to do is to resolve this uncertainty that is unresolvable, he said. And in the end, you're just promoting anxiety. You try and find an answer, you can't find an answer, then you, you just get worse and worse and worse. Part of it is about difficulty concentrating caused by this uncertainty and the anxiety. But this guy is really, really honest. He, he says that if anybody tells you that they know what anxiety is, then they're lying because he says it's so complex that, and that everybody's experience of anxiety is completely unique to them. So he couldn't just pinpoint it and say, this is the reason. But he says, broadly speaking, although everyone's anxiety is completely different to another person's anxiety, there are lots of things that seem a little bit impaired. But he also says, on the other hand, there are lots of things that are a little bit improved on the basis that anxiety is there to help you to survive. And it's an adaptive function that helps you to seek out information that's going to keep you safe. You'll notice different things. So it's avoiding danger. So in some ways, certain things are going to be better. The, the ability to run away and to make spatial planning, apparently, is much better but your verbal working memory will be impaired because that's not actually going to help you to survive at that time. Ah, So you, you're better at remembering spaces and noticing changes, but worse at remembering random lists of digits. They finished the article by saying, I'd be lying if I tried to say this is what anxiety is and this is why people are having difficulty concentrating. Sorry. <laughs> and I thought that was brilliant. It's like... It's a good idea. It's to do with anxiety and anxiety can have, make you um, struggle with some things, but can help other things. But I think it's it sort of pointed out that it's for me anyway, that it's not unusual and it's not surprising that some people are finding it difficult to concentrate mm -hmm. because other people yeah. are experiencing it too. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. Uh, in fact, I was having a conversation with my husband yesterday and I, he was reading, I said, what are you reading? And he's reading, he's got a favourite author, but he's reading a book that he's read before. And he said, because I'm really struggling to read new stuff. 
there's something I don't know familiar or comforting or easy about reading something that you've read before um I'm not very good at reading books that I've read before to be fair but um yeah so there's some there's something in there isn't there and and the idea that it's it's the skills that will serve you well in a crisis are the ones that you that come to the fore and the ones that actually aren't going to be serving you that well fade into the background yeah really and, and the takeaway from that is not to get anxious about it because obviously that just will perpetuate the problem yeah then yeah yeah don't worry about it yeah, yeah. do something yeah. else just before we finish this section, I just thought I'd give a quick mention to the CIPD Festival of Work. It's taking place online this year. And if you're a member of CIPD, then it's free. And if you're not a member, I think it's priced around £39, £40 mark. And it's a, it's a three-day online conference, so it seems like it could be a bit heavy. And it's unlikely that many of us could take a full three days out to listen to online talks even if you wanted to however there are some highlights in there uh, that you might want to uh, to just cherry pick um so i what caught my eye was some of the people who we've mentioned on the show before so we've got um professor sir carrie cooper he's doing a panel discussion on championing well-being and happiness at work to reap the business and societal benefits that's on day two also on day two, there's an expert masterclass by Matthew Side, who we've talked about before with his book, mm. um, You Are Awesome, and, and other uh, writings. He's doing a masterclass on leading growth and change and developing yourself as an agile leader to drive business transformation. And then a lady that we've mentioned before caroline criado perez and she's doing the closing keynote on day three uh, and it's entitled the power of inclusion overcoming the barriers of a world designed for men so it's worth taking a look at if you're a member of cipd it's well worth signing up for and just popping in to do a few if you're going to be paying 40 quid i think you need to make sure you can get your money's worth on, on the talks that are there but there's plenty to choose from and if you're at a loose end between the 10th and the 12th of June, it's probably worth signing up for. So if you just go to uh, festivalofwork.com, uh, you'll find a way to sign up there. And Heather will put a link for that on our blog, on our website, which is thebusiness.community. Our review section this week, um, as we've already alluded to, involves a book that I can't remember how we came across this book. No, nor me. Um, we were, I'm glad we, we did. Were, yeah, we were on Zoom talking. Were we doing a bit of planning or something? And um, yeah, we came across this book anyway. It's called Ripple, uh, The Big Effects of Small Behaviour Changes in Business. So this is very much looking at the behavioural science stuff that we were talking about at the top of the show, um, but actually putting it into the business context. The book is written by a guy called Jess jez groom and april velicott fantastic name that april velicott she sounds very exotic um and it's uh, it's cited as um a must read for anyone who wants to use nudge in business now nudge is a book that was written by the person that we're going to be profiling um later on so see how we've joined all of this up it's almost as if we planned it <laughs> anyway the book um i absolutely love 
it's laid out brilliantly um, it has a number of chapters and they follow a similar sort of pattern so they'll it'll uh, um, outline a, a case study or you know something that is that has been done it will give you um, some information on what you how you could do it how you could apply it like he calls it the do-it-yourself bit um, and so you, you 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 get the situation and then you get some context and then it gets you to think about what that means to you which I think is really really interesting and um, it reminded me of a book that I haven't read but that was mentioned to me and I've never been able to remember that what the title was and it was about um, in that book they talked about uh, you know when you stay in a hotel and the uh, there's a little sign that says you know we don't change your towels every day if you want them washed put them in the bath otherwise just hang them up and we'll leave them and uh, it it talked about how they trialed different ways of saying the same thing. Uh, essentially, the aim is to cut down on laundry costs, but it's pitched as saving the planet. And now they have it says things like most people don't need fresh towels every day. You know, so it, it's building oh, that a bit like the the neighbour energy use that we exactly at the top of the exactly show, yeah. exactly and 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 a lot of that is is sort of underpinning some of the stuff that's talked about in this book. Um, my favourite element of the book um, is where they talk about as somebody who has used online shopping and has used Tesco's online delivery um, store other online shopping stores are available uh, they talk at, at, at length about how to get people to prepay for their deliveries and how they test the the different ways of getting people to renew that uh, making it a kind of no-brainer uh, and the way that they designed the email that was sent so that it looked so instead of um, sending just a, an email that says your delivery saver plan you know dear mrs blogs we wanted to let you know that it's coming to an end um and, you know and it's time to renew um and this is what you'll get they changed that to don't miss out on unlimited free deliveries dear mrs so and so and then they start to put in some numbers so um the cost of your plan uh, how many deliveries how much money you've saved so they're coming at it from a different angle rather than it's time to renew, giving some tangibles. And I can see how those two different scenarios would have a completely different impact on me. And I would then respond and, and sign up, whereas I pretty much might ignore the other one, go, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. But this is like, whoa, hang on a minute. I've already saved X amount of pounds. How much is it going to cost me? Diddly squat. Wow. Fantastic. Renew so um it's those types of things that he talks about but um that was my favorite what what do you think about the book tracy i love the book um a couple of things i should point out right at the beginning uh, it says that every owner of a physical copy of this edition of ripple can download the ebook for free direct from the publishers so um, if you've got the hardback version you can go and get a kindle version or an epub version and you just give your name and there's a little test as well so you can't just share that link with everybody it asks you for 
which words are on certain pages. Just oh my goodness, that's that clever. It is good, isn't it? So for me, it's the best of both worlds because I've got the hardback copy here, which I've highlighted things in. But also if I want to refer back to it at any point, it's on my phone and in my Kindle app so that I can have it in my pocket whenever I need mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. So I really like that. That was page one. <laughs> and then I was really pleased to see at the beginning was a glossary. And that was really useful to know that that was there. I had a quick glance at it initially, but I didn't, uh, I didn't read it in full. But having seen it there, I was then able to refer back to it quite, there's something about it being in the front as opposed to the back. As I was reading through it and I wanted to check the meaning of certain words, it felt okay to go to the back to the glossary back to the beginning of the book yeah, rather yeah, than yeah. move forward to the back of the book it's a simple difference but one that I really made a difference for me as I was reading it but yeah I loved all the stories the actual case studies so I th what I can tell from some of the reading I've done and that admittedly that wasn't a lot of reading about behavioral science because it was all video but the reason um why I went to the video was a lot of the writing about it seemed quite academic, yet this book is is very um, readable and understandable for the layperson. Yeah. So I would I would class it as a good introduction to behavioural science. It wouldn't scare you off, I don't believe, if you read this. You'd just be interested in the stories. Also, it says at the beginning how you should read this book. Now, it says, first, we recommend reading this book cover to cover and then using the book and its tips as prompts as you start to develop your own techniques. I've, I've got three quarters of the way through it. And I actually think for once I might actually finish the book. Uh, so often I, I'll get a good chunk of the way through, get the idea of it and think, right, I know where to refer to if I need to go back to it. Whereas this one, I think because the stories lead you on, the case studies are actually real world and interesting to my own world that I want to read a little bit more. The only thing I would say is that it, it it's primarily written by, by agency people aimed at big business who want to make behavioral science work for them. It doesn't take a lot of effort to change your thinking as to how you can use it for micro and small business. But you do have to make that switch because the risk is you might just go, well, that doesn't apply to me. That's not my business. So it's little things like um, the emphasis on do then think. There's a whole chapter on how you actually have to act and then think about it afterwards. Whereas I think in reality, a lot of micro and small businesses actually have that mentality already it's the bigger businesses that tend to analyze and plan for longer and you have to prompt them to do the doing before they do mm. all of the thinking and the other thing is the senior management buy-in if you're a micro or small business that's not generally such a big issue because you could well be on the senior management team or you could be the only person who's going to make that decision so there's a big section on how you get the senior management to buy into this which was all very interesting but you just have to change your mindset and think okay yeah that's a good story about a big business but not to let it put you off this book is still useful for a micro and for a small business it just tends to be aimed towards big business i think but that will be not negative so much.
No, uh, but I think what it does do, um, and, and at, the, at the very beginning, uh, he, he talks about um, getting people to recognise that pickpockets might operate in a particular area. Oh, I love that. So, yeah. rather, than, so rather than going around picking people's pockets and going there, see, got you, you know, keep an eye on your wallet, they, um, they came at it from putting notes in people's bags and in people's pockets saying pickpockets operate in this area. And people go, crikey, how did that get there? And so it's, 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 it's getting the same message, message across, but it's completely flipped it on its head. And people have a much more memorable and meaningful memory of the fact that there are pickpockets operating because they were got but they didn't suffer as a consequence. So it was a lucky escape. And so I think, I think what it really does do is it gets you to think very differently about how to achieve certain things. And I think that's something that we've seen an awful lot of recently. Um, but it, it, the word nudge crops up a lot and it's just these small little pushing, pushing people in a certain direction rather than steamrolling through and trying to make them act in a particular way that they might resist so it's a good book it's a really good book yeah I, I really think it brings the academic concepts to life with actual real stories you know mm. that, that they're happy to share and and they didn't always go brilliantly so he's not only sharing look at look at me aren't I brilliant with how I did this I mean there's quite a few of those stories uh, but you know he does share the ones where it, it didn't quite work out but there's so many interesting stories like the um you mentioned about put pocketing. I, I love that that idea. Um, but there's one about um, just write, rewriting telephone scripts or rewriting invitation letters and emails that actually work better to encourage people to 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 behave in the way that you'd want them to. So some some things are quite big, like painting murals of babies' faces on shop shutters or um, reinventing laundry buckets. But some of them seem very doable you know just rewriting scripts for telephone calls and rewriting letters that everybody can do those things it's it's not just the big business so that's the book ripple the big effects of small behavior changes in business by jez groom and april velicott uh we'll be putting a link to how you can procure a copy of this book via Amazon on our website, thebusiness.community. And if you happened to buy said book, we might get a couple of pence that we can use to keep the podcast and website live. So um, yeah, all, all purchases gratefully received. So as promised this week, we're profiling somebody from the world of behavioural science. And that is a gentleman called Richard Taylor. Now we're going with that pronunciation. Um, we, we've, we've tried to uh, fathom out whether it's Taylor or Thaler. We apologise if we've got it wrong, but we're going with Taylor for this show. And he's an American economist and professor of behavioural science and economics at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Now, we came across him because he was a co-author of Nudge, the book that was mentioned in the book that we reviewed, Ripple. And it's also um, been mentioned a number of times in, in different things I've been reading about behavioural science. So it seemed appropriate to speak about this gentleman. By the way, the book we've been referring to is called Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth and Happiness. And it was published in 2008. Now. Richard Taylor 
Um, he also won a Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Science for his contributions to behavioral economics. Now, this is where I went down another little rabbit hole here because I thought, hang on a minute, behavioral science, but now we're talking behavioral economics. I need to know what that is. What's the difference? And um, it, it just took me down the, uh, the usual rabbit hole that I went down. But first of all, the Nobel Prize announcement stated that Richard's contributions have built a bridge between the economic and psychological analysis of individual decision making. His empirical findings and theoretical insights have been instrumental in creating the new and rapidly expanding field of behavioral economics. So I thought I'd have a look. What is this behavioral economics? And it studies the effects of psychological, cognitive, emotional, cultural and social factors, that really broad term again, all of those things, <laughs> on the decisions of individuals and institutions and how those decisions vary from those implied by classical economic theory. Now, it's interesting because we've been talking about rational economic man a couple of times. And we started off with who cooked Adam Smith's dinner a few weeks ago. And uh, what Richard has done in his work is he's basically gone against that rational economic man theory. And his work has been based around um, looking at the, um, the recognition that economic agents are human and that economic models have to incorporate the human element. So, and I thought that was really interesting, but the thing that I really liked more than anything is that when he was told he'd won the prize, um, in line with his studies, he said that he intended to spend the prize money as irrationally as possible. <laughs> I like that, there's a little bit of character there. <laughs> What, what did you find out about Richard Taylor, Heather? Well, the, the, the one thing that I found that was really interesting was an article in the FT um, from last year, last August. Um, and basically um, it was in the, um, the section lunch with the FT. So he's being interviewed over lunch, a guy called Tim Harford wrote it. Um, and it's just a really, it's, it's really interesting to start with. Um, it demonstrates that he seems to have a sense of humour and it's, you know, from what you've just said about how he's going to spend his prize money, that seems to be true. Um, and then throughout the whole story, he's sharing little anecdotes and he's giving his view on certain things. So there's an interesting story about um, cashew nuts and how um, uh, it, he put them out for his, his guests and they just mindlessly ate all these cashew nuts, which then meant that they would full up before dinner was served. And, um, and so he just removed them from being in front of them. It's like, OK, let's just let's just take that away. But he talks about um, Brexit and how um, he says, I, I will say that David Cameron never talked to anybody in the behavioural insight team about the Brexit referendum said it was always going to fail because remain is a weak word and leave is a strong word because leave is taking action whereas remain is just nothing. Um, he, he talks about um, the whole 
you're vote are you voting for something that's unknown or are you voting for the status quo and then he says of, of mrs may um he says brexit means brexit is one of the dumbest statements that's ever been uttered by a head of state um and he says it's simultaneously meaningless and wrong and and, and, and you know he's sort of so he's just talking about how you when you actually stop and look at something and you go well what is that what that what's that language what that's what's that actually doing and when you consider that he's an economist um the, you know these things you, you think of economics as being two plus two is four but actually these things influence massive monetary decisions um even to the point where when he orders his meal he orders a crispy duck salad he says it's called salad you know it has at least the illusion of being healthy <laughs> you know, the name of it, 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 it it's duck you know but anyway a really really nice article and i will put a link to it because it just it just gives a really nice sense of the guy which i wasn't able to find anywhere else did you find any video interviews or anything with him i didn't know however he is in a movie he's in um the film the big short from 2015 it's just a cameo appearance in the film um really yeah, so I don't know if you know the film. It's about the credit um, and housing bubble collapse that led okay. to the 2008 global financial crisis. And um, apparently, now I, I've not seen the film, but I might go and see it now just to see this cameo experience. Um, in one of the scenes, he helped Selena Gomez explain the hot hand fallacy in which people believe that whatever is happening now will continue to happen in the future. Oh. So I might have to just go and find that little bit in the that bit, yeah. The other yeah. thing that I picked out, which I thought was really relevant to business, and we, we've sort of touched on it in the discussions we've been having, is the term choice architect. Now that was coined by Taylor and his co-author of the book Nudge. And I had to go and look it up. I, I didn't really know what a choice architect was. But it's the design of different ways in which choices can be presented to consumers and the impact of that presentation on the consumer's decision making. So they taught, there's a lot more detail on this, but basically the, the things to consider are the number of choices presented, the manner in which the attributes are described, and the presence of a default. I suppose one of those examples could be uh, like the, oh, I can't remember what, it's a, it's a print publication, which also has an online one. Is it The Economist? Where they offered um, three different packages. One was a print only, one was digital only, and one was digital and print. And digital and print was the same price as the um, print only. The, um, print out, the, sorry, no, the digital only version. Okay. So, um, there was like there were these three choices, but really only one made sense. And so it it sort of reminded me of that. I'm sure there are much better examples than that, but it it just made me smile to think. Ah, yeah, we've we've touched on this with lots of other readings and and research that we've done, but that's the first time I came across that term, and that's come from Richard Taylor and Cass Sunstein. Well, there we go. Um, yeah, he seems like a nice guy. That's about all we've got time for this week. Um, we'll be back next week. Uh, thank you for listening and uh, do tune in for more news, views and reviews from the world of business. Mm -hmm.
You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Tracy Jones. And me, Heather Noble. Join us again next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.